the hinge upon which all of Christianity hangs upon is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series titled Apostles' Creed, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So what is the central hinge upon all of Christianity that all of Christianity um, turns upon or hangs upon? What is that centerpiece of our faith? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, uh, Paul gives it, or verses 1 through 4, Paul gives it to us. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the gospel? We ask everyone that we interview uh, in our Shoreline uh, Explored class as we uh, move towards covenant community, we've asked every single person, what is the gospel? And according to Paul, right here in these verses, the gospel must be preached, but it has to be received. The gospel is the bedrock upon which the Christian stands and builds his or her life upon. According to Paul, the gospel is the sole means by which we are saved. And those who believe and live lives submitted to the gospel are not believing in vain. But not only that, Paul says that the gospel needs to be delivered from one person to another. Another, even as, as it has been received from one person to another. Paul received it, and then Paul delivered it to the Corinthians. But what is it? What is the gospel? Well, Paul uh, basically summarizes it right here in verses 3 and 4, and he says that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel, and that is for the redemption of his people from sin. Uh, last week, we began a new series examining one of the earliest summaries of what all Christians believe. Uh, And this is a summary we call the Apostles' Creed. Every statement in this creed is essential for holding to Orthodox Christianity. So I would say this, many Christians believe more than is written in the creed, but none can believe less than is written in it. So in other words, you may not be able to fully explain everything in the creed as a new Christian, But what you can't do is say, I don't believe in that anymore. I'm going to remove that. I'm going to take an eraser or a whiteout pen, and I'm just going to to make that mark and leave it out. And so last week we made the big point that creeds are not inspired texts. So we're not here this morning to study the Apostles' Creed in an expositional way like we do the Scriptures because it's not inspired. But what we are going to do is we're going to take the creed line by line and say, well, what Scriptures does this speak of? And then we're going to study the Scriptures more fully because the creed points to the word of God and only the word of God, the Bible, is inspired by God. So last week we looked at the first sentence of the creed and the first sentence says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And we saw what was essential. 
to uh, what was essential to know about Yahweh, our triune God, who, who was and who always will be, the creator who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we also looked at that second sentence that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And we studied the person of Christ, born of a virgin, God incarnate, holy, miraculously conceived. And both services, two different people came up to me and said, you didn't mention the sinlessness of Christ in his birth. So I capitulate, I did not mention the sinlessness of Christ in his deity, born of a virgin. And that was very important to kind of mention. Big moment I left out there. Uh, Today we're going to continue our examination of the section of the creed that talks about the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be studying the scriptures that speak about the gospel. And I don't want you to miss this today, church. The hinge upon which all of Christianity hangs upon is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, his sinlessness, his suffering, his vicarious atonement through his death on the cross, as well as his burial, resurrection, ascension, and his consummate return. Listen to these words, these sobering words from John the Apostle. He said in 2 John 1, 7, he said, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. And what what do we look for in the deceiver? He says, well, they are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, we mentioned this a few weeks back in our Kingdom Come series, that when I grew up, my parents were always trying to find out who is the antichrist. Maybe it's this politician. Maybe it's this celebrity. It's got to be that guy. Uh, And so we were always constantly trying to identify the Antichrist. It's very interesting. Right here, John tells us that anyone who does not confess who Jesus truly is, is the Antichrist or an Antichrist. They have the spirit of being anti-Jesus. So I find it fascinating, in fact, devastating, that every false religion, those who are deceivers, have a skewed view of who Jesus is. And it's interesting that these deceptive views of Jesus are not only answered and corrected by the Bible, but they're also answered and corrected by the creeds. So um, that is why one reason the Apostles' Creed is important and helpful, but also the Nicene and the Chalcedonian creeds. Those are helpful creeds to help us understand, well, who is Jesus? Because as heretics rose up and said, here's Jesus, the church said, that's not Jesus at all. Let's clarify who he is. Uh, So just think about this for a minute. All these different groups have one thing in common. I'm going to show you on the screen. And they all have a different view of Jesus than the Bible and the creeds affirm. So Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll see them at Kingdom Hall. They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. If you talk to Mormons, they're the guys with the short sleeve white shirt and they're elders even though they're 18. uh, And they ride their bikes to your door and they will come and talk to you and say, I'm a Christian like you are. And you go, but wait a minute, who's Jesus? And they'll say, well, he was created after Elohim had, had sex with Mary. Uh, so obviously a skewed view of Jesus. They um, are different than the Christian scientists who believe that Jesus was a man who had the Christ idea, whatever that means. Uh, if you have Wiccan friends, they're probably not quick to admit it, but Wiccans believe that Jesus was either a myth or a spiritual teacher of love. Those who are New Agers believe Jesus was a spiritual guru who somehow tapped into divine power. You'll hear that a lot. We need to tap into the Christ, right, the divine power. Uh, Those who are uh, Muslim believe that Jesus is not God, but a sinless prophet of Allah. 
Uh, Jews, of course, believe he was either a false messiah or a martyred rabbi. And then, of course, Hindus believe Jesus was a teacher, a guru, one of God's sons, but not the only son of God. Buddhists typically believe he was an enlightened teacher, but not God. Now, this isn't around as much, but you used to see him at the airport wearing orange. Harry Krishnas, they believe that Jesus was an enlightened vegetarian med- uh, mediator or meditator. Yeah, that's, I can't read, meditator. And then, of course, Ricky Bobby, he believed in eight-pound, six-ounce, cuddly, and omnipotent baby Jesus wearing golden fleece diapers. So all of these different beliefs have an erroneous or skewed perspective of Jesus. In every religion, Jesus is reduced from God to something else. He's merely something else. But the scriptures tell us, in Colossians 2.9, the scriptures tell us, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we, this morning, are going to look at the person and work of Christ, that, that this is God incarnate. Jesus came from heaven to earth on behalf of sinners. But what exactly did he do while on earth? Well, the creeds admittedly don't give us a lot of detail from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ. In fact, we start with the incarnation in the creed and then we end with the death. Uh, So large swaths of Jesus' earthly ministry are omitted even from the Apostles' Creed. Now, I've told you this. The creeds are summaries. They're not exhaustive. So we do skip over that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a lot of details. Uh, between the birth of Christ and the passion of Christ. But what we have in the creed is most essential. So let's pick up the creed starting with the line that says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now I'm reading that and I'm reciting that and I'm memorizing the creed, maybe you guys are too, but I'm kind of going, that doesn't seem important. Of all the details about Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Can't we take that part out and just get to the cross? Is that even important? Now, I've said every statement in the Apostles' Creed is essential to hold to Orthodox Christianity. And we tend to uh, underemphasize the suffering of Christ and, and inflate, which is a good thing, his substitutionary death. So why are we including this line, he suffered under Pontius Pilate? Well, if you're taking note, I'd love for you to jot down three reasons why this is important. There are three reasons why this is actually key. The first reason is this. Why do we need to know this? Well, this statement anchors Jesus' life to a historical date. So we learn here that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Who is Pontius Pilate? Well, he was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, and he served under Emperor Tiberius from 26 to 36 AD. Uh, He had been appointed prefect of Judea kind of because of favoritism. He was beloved by the chief administrator for the Caesar, Tiberius, named Sejanus. And Sejanus pulled some strings for him to allow him to be in the position he was in. Uh, As we know, happens in politics even today. But in the year 31, Sejanus was removed, and that left Pilate very vulnerable as the leader, as the prefect, the Roman representative in Judea. And so eventually, he was ordered to come back to Rome and stand trial for leading as a leader with cruelty and oppression. And get this, one of the main charges that was brought up against Pilate was this, that he executed men without proper trial. Isn't that crazy? Now, according to some historians, Pilate ended up committing suicide after being ordered to do so from Emperor Caligula. So the fact that the creed 
in the uh, early church affirms that Jesus suffered under a true historical figure means we can affirm that what we're studying today, what we're reading today, the gospel, is not myth and it's not legend uh, and it's not conjured up stories that aren't anchored in history. Jesus was a historical man who suffered under, under the jurisdiction of a historical man named Pilate who ruled between the historical years of 26 and 36 in the historical city of Jerusalem. So that should encourage us today uh, that this uh, gospel is true. Secondly, though, to hear that phrase, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, this also confirms the testimony of Jesus, and it provides us an example worthy of following. How so? Well, Jesus suffered standing in front of Pilate and didn't bow his knee to Rome. Uh, Jesus proclaimed victoriously that he is a king and that his kingdom is not of this world. In the same way, too, we must confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, even if that means suffering and even if that is in front of the threat of death. We are not promised a life of ease as a Christian. Some people will say, like, come to Christ, and as soon as you come to Jesus, all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. He's going to make your life better. Every Christian gets a free puppy and free health care. It's just going to be great. And we just have this idea that coming to faith in Christ means all my problems magically disappear. Well, here's what Paul told the Philippians. He told the Philippians in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, yeah, but also suffer for his sake. So it has been granted to us, church, that we should suffer for his sake. Jesus made what Paul calls the good confession before Pilate. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he said, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made, here it is, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from the reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is just as Jesus made a good confession before a measly Roman provincial governor by having royal silence and also speaking the good confession through his, his, his bloody death, so too, Paul says, you, Timothy, may have to make that good confession even if it means you're going to be a martyr. Uh, you're going to stand before the only prince, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who represents the only wise God, dwelling in unapproachable light, who possesses eternal honor and dominion. Don't, don't capitulate to those who have lesser honor and dominion, but make the good confession, even if politically it means that you uh, could lose your life. Well, thirdly, uh, the reason we see he suffered under Pontius Pilate, why this is important is, thirdly, this reveals the suffering that Jesus endured for us. We could have skipped that part and just got to the death. But Jesus suffered. And I don't want to minimize that. I know some Catholics can overemphasize that. We, we don't want to overemphasize that and inflate that. But the scriptures foretold this. So I want you, I told you in the series, we're going to bounce around a lot to different verses. Would you turn from 1 Corinthians to the book of Isaiah? Or if you have a phone, swipe to Isaiah 52. We're reading from the English Standard Version. You're always welcome to have phones here. Use the ESV or the Logos app, the Bible app. Just make sure it's on silent. Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14. Notice this. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was on the scene. Isaiah 52, 
13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And then it goes down to chapter 53, which should be a verse highlighted in your Bibles and one that you uh, reflect on uh, often. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2, says, For he, or verse 3 rather, that says, He was despised, this is the same servant, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you go on to read, you'll see that he uh, was basically a lamb led to a slaughter and kept his mouth silent. Uh, but know with me the suffering, uh, the agony that the despised and rejected servant of God is going to experience, uh, but he ultimately will be exalted, but in the meantime, his appearance is going to be, is going to be uh, and his form are going to be marred. And this piercing is going to be for our transgressions. This crushing is for our iniquities. It was with his wounds that we are healed, and it was our iniquity that was laid on him. All of this is a picture of the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who took our place, who suffered on our behalf, and who took the wrath of God, the iniquity that we deserved, uh, that we had, uh, was laid on him. And our transgressions that we should have been pierced for was put upon him. So this part of the creed is very important, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Such an overlooked aspect of our faith that we just kind of read through or breeze through. But the next line of the Apostles' Creed is where we really get uh, to the heart of the gospel work of Christ. So notice it says, Jesus was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So we as Christians believe in the physical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the conclusion of our gathering today, we're going to partake in communion together. And as Christians, we celebrate communion. Often at Shoreline, we do that every month. And what we'll be doing today is we're going to be reading Matthew's narrative that gives us the actual um, details of Jesus' crucifixion and death and his scourging uh, and death at the hands of Rome. Uh, but notice in this part of the creed, this is the gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised for our sins. So we don't believe that Jesus passed out on the cross. He just passed out and didn't die. This is a theory that Muslims ascribe known as the swoon theory. Uh, we don't believe that that would have motivated the disciples to see Jesus in the in almost a dead-like state who kind of uh, resuscitated and came out and, and just revived and encouraged them in their faith. That would not have motivated them. No, we believe, like the scriptures foretell, multiple eyewitnesses um, confirm even the medical diagnosis of trained military executioners. We believe that Christ indeed died. 
We don't believe that Jesus' body was consumed by wild animals and that the disciples made up this fanciful story. No, we believe Jesus was buried. We don't believe Jesus remained dead and that the disciples just had a mass hallucination of over 500 people thinking that he was resurrected. No, we, as Psalm 1610 promises, we believe that he did not let his Holy One see corruption in the grave. So we believe Jesus rose victoriously from the dead and Jesus conquered sin and death. Now, all four gospel accounts record these things, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll put them on the screen. You can read them later. Matthew 27 and 28, Mark 15 and 16, Luke 23 and 24, and John 18 through 20. They speak about the death, the burial, the resurrection. Now, the Apostles' Creed, as well as the Bible, affirms the gospel. But there's one little detail that gets put in the creed. It's just this one little insertion that makes my job a lot more tricky. The sermon would have been a lot easier today if we didn't have the little sentence or the little phrase, he descended to hell. And so what does that mean, he descended to hell? I mean, this is so controversial that some church traditions actually remove that section. So they get to that part of the creed and they just kind of like look around and just kind of skip that part and move on to the next part. Or they replace it, we can take that off the screen, Michael. They replace it with, he suffered the tournaments of hell. Instead of he descended to hell, they say, they change it to, he, de- he suffered the tournaments of hell. That phrase makes me think of parents who are talking about postseason Little League, right? He suffered the torments, the tournaments of hell. Uh, but what exactly was Jesus doing? I guess none of you have had kids in postseason um, Little League, but it is a tournament of hell. Um, but what exactly was Jesus doing between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, the third day when he rose again? What does he descended to hell even mean? Well, some would say, well, it just means he died. Uh, and, and with the way that hell is translated, it just means grave, just means he died. Um, and that's certainly possible. But I think definitely it's not three things. Definitely not these three things. He descended to hell. Number one, you can put that up now, Michael. It does not mean that Jesus descended to the lake of fire. So when you and I use the word hell and we think of final judgment, um, that word hell that we usually uh, use is what we refer to to the lake of fire. But the word hell can be translated Sheol or Hades. And this is different than the lake of fire that we read about in Revelation 20, which Jesus referred to in Matthew 25, 41 as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. So here's what one person said. They said, in the Hebrew scriptures, the word used to describe the realm of the dead is Sheol. It simply means the place of the dead or the place of departed souls and spirits. Uh, The New Testament Greek equivalent of Sheol is Hades, which also refers to the place of the dead. Other scriptures in the New Testament indicate that Sheol, Hades, is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the final resurrection and judgment. They go on to say Revelation 20, 11 through 15, gives a clear distinction between Hades and the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the permanent and final place of judgment for the lost. Hades, then, is a temporary place. Many people refer to both Hades and the lake of fire as hell, and this causes confusion. Jesus did not go to a place of torment, a.k.a. Gehenna, after his death, but he did go to Hades, uh, hell, okay? So I don't know if that clears it up for you, but we're not referring to the lake of fire, okay? The final judgment. But this also does not mean 
he descended to hell does not mean that Jesus went to Hades to further suffer or to further pay for sin. There's a prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, but a lot of prosperity preachers on television will say Jesus had to go to hell to suffer more, to fully suffer, to cover uh, our uh, redemption. Uh, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. If he said it is finished, that doesn't mean, but part two is coming, the sequel in hell. No. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's not any additional next level, uh, extra added layer of suffering that Jesus needed to endure that cleanses us from sin. What Jesus accomplished on the cross fully and finally satisfied the wrath of God and sufficiently provided for our complete redemption. I don't know, I, I amen that, but amen. Uh, so Jesus did not have to further pay for sin. But thirdly, this is where it gets a little fun, it does not mean Jesus descended into Hades to offer a second chance of salvation to people who died in Noah's day. Some people believe that. Well, Jesus went down there, and it's like purgatory. He went down, and people suffered in Noah's day and didn't, didn't receive Noah's message. That's the Catholic interpretation. Uh, and, and that takes one verse out of the Bible, very out of context. That verse is 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. Here's the verse, so you can see where they come up with this. Uh, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So according to Peter here, Jesus went and proclaimed to whatever these are, spirits in prison, and we can interpret that those are ones who sinned in the days of Noah. So simultaneously, he's proclaiming his victory over death and triumph over the power of evil, and he confirmed the sentence of death on unbelievers, at the same time announcing deliverance for believers. Now, how did he do that? Um, let's all jot down a verse that I want you to read later. We don't have time today, but I'd love for you to jot this verse down. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, okay? Luke 16, 19 through 31. Go and read that, and what you'll find is that Jesus seems to be, seems to be telling a parable about a rich man and a poor man who both died. Except Jesus does something he never does in any of his other parables, and that's he gives the poor man a name, and the poor man's name is Lazarus. So is this a parable, or is this an actual story? Well, I believe it's a true story where Jesus describes this rich man who dies, he's buried, and he says he goes to Hades in torment. But the poor man, Lazarus, also dies, probably around the same time, but he doesn't go to torment, he goes to what's called Abraham's side, or if we're really old school, Abraham's bosom. There's a word we don't use often, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. And so the poor man is there being comforted, and the rich man is being tormented. And so the rich man asks Abraham, calls out to Abraham, hey, Abraham, will you provide me mercy and just give me, give me just a tip of water from your finger? Uh, and Abraham says, this is impossible. There's a great chasm fixed between the two places here. Uh, and no one can move freely from one side to the other. I don't know why you'd want to go to the site of torment, but I can if I wanted to. And so the rich man says, well, would you please send Lazarus, the poor man, back to preach to my family. I have five brothers. I don't want them to die and suffer anguish like I am suffering. But Abraham says, listen, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
And then it's very fascinating that we have a man named Lazarus who rises from the dead. Anyway, um, I believe that Hades was the place of the dead. So summarize all this. It's a place of torment for the unrighteous, which also contained an honored place of comfort for the righteous dead before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know this side being known as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. So when Jesus died, he descended there. He proclaimed his victory over death. He confirmed the sentence on the guilty sinful on the torment side. Uh, but he led captivity captive. So as Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 tell us, they say God provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So it's not apart from us, but with us. They don't get like extra gospel. Jesus preached to those spirits and they were able to uh, kind of clear that out at the resurrection. So um, the righteous dead before the resurrection would be made perfect with us, not separate from us. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross who repented? Remember what he said to him in Luke 23, 42 and 43? Jesus, uh, the, the man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't blowing smoke. Like What I meant by today is like in the millennial reign. What I mean is later on after soul sleep. No, that's, that's false. Uh, he meant today. I'm going to be with you at Abraham's side. Uh, and so a place of torment where those who are unrighteous go to be tormented would not be paradise. Okay, That's like saying, hey guys, we're going to take a nice family vacation to Brandon. Okay, no, you can't paradise in a place of torment. Have you ever been to Brandon? <laughs> if you haven't been to Brandon, you don't get it. But see, I believe Jesus descended to Abraham's side in Hades, proclaimed the gospel to Noah, to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to David, to Solomon, to Gideon, to Esther, to Mordecai, and all the Old Testament saints, and simultaneously proclaimed judgment on the, those on the other side, who had rejected salvation, even as far back as Peter points out the time of Noah. So the creed simply affirms Jesus descended to hell, but we can rejoice he didn't remain there. Amen? Look at the next important sentence. He rose again uh, from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We believe that Jesus rose again on the third day, triumphing over sin and even the final enemy, death. But he didn't stay on this planet. The creed and the scriptures affirm that Jesus ascended to heaven and, and currently is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Why is that important? Why does the ascension of Jesus matter? I told you we're going some places. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm starting in verse 6. You should have a heading that says the ascension. Now the ascension is kind of an overlooked part of the gospel. We kind of like aren't sure what to do with it. Because it kind of feels like someone's being beamed up. That Jesus is just kind of floating up. So we're, we're kind of like maybe embarrassed or not sure how to explain that and why that's important. But I want you to see this from the scriptures. Notice verse 6, when they had come together... They, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which in his day would have been Lakewood Ranch, and here we are. 
Uh, we have seen witnesses to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, notice here, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, that's kind of like, what do you do now? Like you're kind of looking at each other, well, now what? And now I love this part. It says that in verse 11, two men stood by them in white robes, verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, this is the ascension, and this is a, a very important and overlooked doctrine within Christianity, and, and it's really important for a number of reasons. But don't overlook the fact that the creed says he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. On Pentecost, when Peter addresses a large crowd in Jerusalem, there's about 3,000 added to the church in one sermon. They repent of their sin. They trust Christ. Peter says this. Why did Jesus get to ascend? Um, he says this in Acts 2, um, 33. Uh, notice on the screen, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Notice here, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Um, now, this is an important verse that he's referencing. In fact, you're not convinced, but this is the, probably the pivotal Old Testament verse. Uh, that's quoted in the New Testament more than any other verse in the Old. And it's Psalm 110. Really important, critical verse that speaks about, this is David essentially speaking about uh, the fact that his Lord would sit uh, at the right hand of the Father. Um, and so it's key because David is saying like, hey, uh, this isn't going to be me. This is my Lord. Um, being addressed by Yahweh. And my Lord is going to sit at Yahweh's right hand until all the enemies are made um, uh, made your footstool. Uh, and so this is incredibly important, the ascension, the idea of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. Why didn't Jesus just rise again and just, he's alive, just stay with us? Well, it's important uh, for four reasons. I'd love for you to jot these down. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but just walk through them really quickly. So the ascension validates Christ's sinless substitutionary atonement on the cross. Um, I'm going to share on a blog this week more about what uh, penal substitutionary atonement is so you can understand what is the cross, what is that about, and some differing views on that. We'll talk about that in a blog post this week. Um, so the ascension validates Jesus' work on the cross. If, if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't complete, it wasn't valid, then he would not have ascended. But not only that, number two, it enthrones him as Lord of all. So when Jesus ascends, uh, when he does that, David is saying, I didn't ascend. Uh, my Lord did. And so Jesus is Lord of all, not David, but he sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for his people even today. Not only that, but the ascension, thirdly, provides us, God's people, with the advantage of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? 
If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. So because Jesus ascended, we have the Holy Spirit as our helper. But number four, the ascension is important because it sets a precedent for Christ's return. Jesus' glorious conquest and return will be the same way, like the angel says, that he departed in the clouds. So those four things again. The ascension validates Christ's work on the cross. It enthrones him as Lord of all. It provides us with the Holy Spirit, and it sets a precedent for his return. Now, it's really important that you know he's at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's some verses for you to jot down. We won't read all these, but Acts chapter 7, 55-56, Romans 8:34, and Ephesians 1:20 tell us um, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Now, let's look at that last little phrase in the creed, and it says, from whence, or from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead, or some, some ways that the creed call it the quick and the dead. Uh, now, we covered a lot of that in our Kingdom Come series, so if you want to get some more understanding of the second coming, I encourage you to go back and listen to that series through First Thessalonians. All Christians believe in the second coming, the second advent of Jesus Christ. And in his return, he's not coming as suffering servant, he's coming as not substitute, uh, but as judge. He'll come on uh, the day of the Lord with vengeance to bring final judgment. And so Peter told a Gentile audience with Cornelius, we'll just give you the verse, Acts chapter 10, 42 and 43, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Here's what Albert Muller says about that. He says in his book, The Apostles' Creed, the king is coming to claim his church. And he's coming to bring blessing and final consolation to his chosen people. He's coming to rescue his own from this evil age. And he's coming to execute judgment upon every single human being. Now, somehow, people take what we've just looked at, the gospel, the work of Christ on our behalf. And it literally stays in the realm of facts and figures. So it just lives up here in the mind. It lives in the brain. Oh, I know yeah, I know on the third day Jesus, I know that. I have that information. Um, but it never becomes transformation. So we have to be informed of the gospel because it's news, it's information. But it's equally important that we're formed by or transformed by the gospel. And so here's a question for you as we consider the beginning of a new year. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on your behalf, does that have any application in our lives? That is the dumbest question that I have asked this year. That is by far, and it's only the third day, but that is the dumbest question I have asked. A better question is this. Is there any area in my life where the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't apply? And the answer is a resounding no. There's no area in my life where the gospel doesn't apply. Our lives as Christians are to be gospel-centered. But what does that look like? What does it look like to be gospel-centered? Well, Joe Thorne says this. Joe Thorne says, The gospel-centered life is a life where a Christian, if you're here and you say, I'm a Christian, then the gospel-centered Christian, that life is where we experience a growing personal reliance on the work of Christ, the gospel, that protects him or her from depending on his or her own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. That is what it means to be gospel-centered. And so Joe Thorne points out four fruits of a gospel-centered life. And this is how we're going to apply this idea today. So I'd love for you to jot four words down that I'm going to be 
kind of chewing on this week, chewing on this month, chewing on this year. And I'd love for you to jot these down. Of gospel-centered life. Number one, if we are living gospel-centered, that should bring us confidence. Now, notice I didn't say arrogance, but I said confidence. Think about how many Christians lack confidence of their salvation or in their right standing with God. I don't know how many Christians I talk to, and like, I'm just not sure if I'm saved. If I died today, would I go to heaven? I don't know. I'm hoping. I, I think I'm a Christian. Rather than the bedrock assurance and the confidence, no, I'm saved. I am born again. Here's what Joe Thorne says. I'll just read it to you. He says, when the gospel is central, we have confidence before God. Not because of our achievements, but because of Christ's atonement. We can approach God knowing he receives us as his children. We do not allow our sins to anchor us to guilt and despair, but the very presence of our sin in our lives compels us to flee again and again to Christ for grace that restores our spirits and gives us strength. The question is, are you experiencing that sort of confidence in the finished work of Christ on your behalf? Well, secondly, Joe Thorne points out that a gospel-centered life includes intimacy. Intimacy. He says, when the gospel is central, we have and maintain intimacy with God, not because of our religious performance. Have you ever been there? Well, Lord, I read your word and studied and prayed and fasted, and I even brushed and flossed today. So you deserve, or I deserve, a blessing, and you owe me. I have been performing religiously. Now I should receive a blessing for that. He says, no, not because of that, but because of Jesus' priestly ministry. We know that Jesus is our mediator with God the Father. He has made perfect peace for us through his sacrifice, which allows us to draw near to the Father with the eager expectation of receiving grace and not judgment. So has the gospel so taken root in your heart that you see the joy and blessing of union with Christ? Are you experiencing intimacy because of Christ's finished work? Uh, Or are you trying to manufacture that through uh, religious works? Well, thirdly, a third fruit of a gospel-centered life, according to Joe Thorne, is transformation. Not just information, transformation. He says, when the gospel's central, we experience transformation. Not just moral improvement, and this change does not come about by our willpower, It comes about by the power of the resurrection. And our hope for becoming what God designed and desires for us is not by trying harder, but trusting more. Relying on his truth and his spirit to sanctify us. You see, church, Jesus declares, it is finished. And he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So do you have transformation uh, in your life? Well, finally, when we have a gospel-centered life, that leads to community. He says, when the gospel's central, we long for and we discover unity with other believers in the local church. Not because we have cultural commonality. Actually, on the contrary, it's because of our common faith and Savior. And within this covenant community, if the community itself is gospel-centered, we experience the kind of fellowship that comforts the afflicted, that corrects the wayward, that strengthens the weak and encourages the disheartened. You see, church, Jesus died, was buried. He rose again triumphantly for us. And as we close in song in just a moment, um, our ushers are going to be distributing the elements for communion. And we're asking only Christians, only those who have repented and trusted Christ for salvation to receive the elements. Just hang on to them. Uh, And we're going to be receiving Christ's body and blood on our behalf in just a minute. But church, as we conclude 
um, this sermon, may we live lives that have been marked by the gospel, lives of confidence, being unashamed before him, not because of our works, but because our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. May we live intimate lives with him, knowing it's not my works that qualify me, it's his finished work. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. May we live transformed lives, not try harder, do better, but resting and relying on his spirit. And may we draw near to one another to encourage one another, even as the day approaches for for our community's good and for his glory. We are, I'm going to use this phrase a lot this year, we are gospel people. And so let the gospel mark our lives in 2021 like never before. Amen? Uh, Let's pray together. Our team's going to come up. We're going to sing just a song of gratitude. Jesus, thank you. And we're going to have the ushers distribute the elements. Just hold on to them, and I'll lead us in a time of communion in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we close (coughs) singing the words that we're about to sing, Jesus, thank you. We want to say, Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son on our behalf. We thank you for the, um, the historical nature of the church that we are a part of thousands of years of church history, and we have a creed that kind of summarizes and unites all believers to um, this anthem that's rooted in Scripture. And Lord, today we've looked at the work of Christ on our behalf, and we do want to just sing these words, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did for us, for me. So Lord, as we um, hold on to these elements, as we reflect upon the work of Christ, Lord, help us not to do this in an unworthy manner, but to remember Jesus, to consider Jesus and to offer gratitude and hearts that are yielded to him like never before. So we love you, we commit this time to you, and we worship you now with joy in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing and hold on to the elements as they're distributed. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.